Welcome. It's great to have you all here tonight. Don't you just love chemists? You know, they're such great problem solvers. You could say they have a lot of solutions. <laughs> you know, of course, in chemistry, you know that uh, a solution is when you mix two substances together and it, uh, they dissolve into each other. Depending on what you put in there, it may precipitate down. That little collection you get at the bottom is the precipitate. So around here we say, you know, you're either part of the solution or you're part of the precipitate. So <laughs> make sure it be the right one. <laughs> well, now it's time to turn the time over to someone who's always part of the solution. It's Dr. John with the Technology Spotlight. <laughs> Have you ever noticed that everything that hops is cute? You know, like bunnies, frogs, and grasshoppers, are they cute? Okay, almost everything. <laughs> well, I want to show you another thing that hops that's cute. It's a little robot called Salto. Now, this is a robot that's been developed at UC Berkeley, and I want to show you a picture. You'll notice right now it's jumping, so it's in the air, and it only has one leg, and its foot is this really thin thing at the bottom. Now, you notice that it's got the tail labeled there. The tail is actually a thing that spins with weights to help balance it. And then up on the top, it has two little fans. Those are the thrusters up there, kind of like you would see on a drone. And it can use those to stabilize itself while it's jumping. So the big test, though, is, is it cute? Well, let's see it in action, and then we'll see what you think. Uh, in order to... Um, make this robot work, they have it in a lab, and they have all these motion cameras pointed at it. And they can track where it is, and then they can send the signals. Let's, let's look at the video and, and see how this works. So here are the motion cameras, and they kind of can tell where it is, and the computer sends the commands of how far to jump and everything. And there it is, <laughs> jumping all around. <laughs> now this is it in slow motion. I want you to notice how it controls its angle depending on which way it's going to jump when it lands. See how it tips itself to jump the other way and then the other way? So using that tail, as they call it, and those little fans, it can change its position and do a lot of pretty cool things. So the researchers wanted to take this robot out of the lab, away from the motion cameras where it could run on its own. But they found out that this little robot has an attitude problem. I'm not talking about emotional attitudes. I'm talking about the other kind of attitude. You know, if you're a pilot, then you know that when we're talking about how the plane is tipped, that's the attitude of the plane. And so that's what they're talking about for their little robot. When it's flying, its attitude is how it's tipped. And it turns out that as it's jumping around, it tries to keep track of its attitude uh, with these little sensors and using something called dead reckoning. And this is the idea where if you know where you are and then you know how far you moved and which direction you moved and how, I should say, how fast you were moving and how long you moved, then you can figure out exactly where you are now. And they use that to try to keep track of these things. But if you can imagine jumping around, that gets off. And so um, pretty soon the robot doesn't know its attitude and it's trying to go straight and it tips and it goes, you know. So they have to figure out how to do that. So they came up with a new algorithm to be the attitude correction. It sounds like a really positive thing, doesn't it? <laughs> An attitude correction. So I want to show you a video of a robot 
first there's one with the attitude correction and one without. Okay, here we go. So you can see at the bottom there, it has the correction, and then they interject an error, and watch what happens. The one at the bottom corrects itself. The one that doesn't have the correction uh, has a hard time. We have a winner. <laughs> oh, that top one, that reminded me of my pogo stick days. <laughs> uh, yeah. But, so that correction algorithm sounds really useful. So anyway, once they had that, then all of a sudden they had a lot more possibilities. So they were able to take the robot out of the lab and outside. Let's take a look at this video where they're taking it out. And he's actually controlling it with a wireless remote control to tell it how far to jump and things like that. But it's keeping track of its own position uh, that whole time. And they were able to run for, I think its batteries last for like 10 minutes right now. So it's a pretty cool little thing. And um, they're planning to improve upon it and give it a better foot so it can jump on more different, more types of surfaces, like um, maybe on tree branches. Climb up the tree, right? <laughs> Be pretty cool. Maybe they could make it look a little bit like a monkey or something. <laughs> I don't know. A lot of possibilities. Uh, and you're probably thinking that would be a really great toy, you know, to put under the tree or something. But actually, they say that the algorithms they've been developing will actually apply for a lot of different kinds of robots, a lot of different applications. So in the future, you never know what you might see hopping around. That's all the tech we have the time for. <laughs> all right. Now it's time for Breakthrough Moments in Science with Tobias. Wow, I don't know how to follow that, okay? <laughs> he said, I mean, he said that every, if, if you hop, you're cute, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna try that out later tonight. We'll see how it goes. I'm gonna go to IHOP, and we're just gonna hang out there. But anyway, I'm, I'm trying to have a good attitude right now because, well, I was feeling pretty good about what I was gonna talk about, and then he talked about this cool stuff, um, so we're just gonna do it, okay. Tonight we're gonna talk about Dead creatures and animal fat. <laughs> H half of you are like, did Garfield die? Okay. The other half is like, who's Garfield? <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, we're talking about fossil fuels. Okay, whoa, fossil fuels? What exactly are fossil fuels? Well, it turns out there's this really black, gooey stuff that comes out of the earth, and it's it's called sometimes crude oil, and there's other names for it. But basically, what this is, is it's creatures that lived million, even millions of years ago. And they died, they fell to the, like the bottom of the ocean. Eventually, they were covered in sediment, okay? And they get buried down, deep, deep down in the ocean into the earth. And eventually, because of the intense pressure and the heat, they changed into this crude oil, okay? Now, it's down in the earth. Uh, sometimes it'll seep up, but usually to find it, we've had to drill down into the earth to get this crude oil. And it turns out this crude oil is pretty amazing stuff. Now, it's non-renewable because, I mean, it takes millions of years to make this stuff, so we have to be wise about how we use it. But we can do incredible, not, not just like fuel, which is a huge use of this right now, but even things like plastics, um, 
different kinds of materials we're able to make from this oil. And you know, that does bring up a real quick important question. Um, if toys are made out of fossil fuels, then is that toy dinosaur made from real dinosaur? <laughs> <laughs> okay, but, but that's why they call it fossil fuel because it's, it's this, this fuel that we use for things and it's actually from these creatures from very, very long ago. Okay, now we need to lay that groundwork because we're talking about a guy in the late 1800s named Dr. John Ellis. Those Dr. Johns, they're just, they're fun. He probably hops, okay? <laughs> but Dr. John Ellis, now he actually was a literal medical doctor, okay? And in his lifetime, he's in his 50s, they have the new gold rush. And this new gold rush was for black gold, meaning oil. They found oil in places like Pennsylvania. So he travels there, not to go get oil to you know, figure out some way to use it as fuel. That was one of the things they were looking at doing. Basically, all these people wanted to get this, this new oil and this new supply of it and figure out ways to use it. Because if you could figure out how to use this magical substance, you could maybe start your own business and you know, make it big. And so a lot of people were racing to get a piece of this pie, this greasy black pie. Um, but he went to study it for medical use. Okay, so he goes there, he goes to Titusville, that sounds like a fun place, um, which is where a lot of these wells are. And he starts to research it. Well, as he's researching this oil, now remember, this is crude oil. So it's this icky, black, oily uh, substance. And as he's researching it, he starts to notice some really interesting properties about it. And one of the things he notices and thinks about is, what if this was used for a lubrication on machines? Now, we need to stop and kind of think about where he's at and what, what we're doing as far as machines at this time. We're using steam engines by now, okay? And there was a big problem with these new machines, and that was you had all this metal, okay? So in these engines, you have metal touching metal, and there's stuff happening, and it doesn't just happen. It gets faster, 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 faster. It's like a ex new exercise move. You can do this all day. You just go get your coffee like, oh, hey, Jim. <laughs> but it's moving. Now, if I take my hands and I rub them, my hands start getting warm. But when this metal goes faster and faster, faster than I can rub my hands, boy, does it get hot. And if you, if you see some of the metal in those engines, it looks pretty smooth. But if you looked at it under a microscope, it looked like the Grand Canyon because it is not smooth. There's tiny little imperfections. And as that metal starts to rub, it can wear down. But even more importantly, and we face this with our cars and other engines today, they can even melt because of that friction. The heat from your, the friction of rubbing your hands is so much more intense with the metal on metal. And so at the time when Dr. John Ellis was looking at this, the solution they were using was mostly animal fat. So they, can you imagine that? <laughs> yeah, I need a new batch of animal fat, please. <laughs> so wipe it, they use animal fat because they needed something to keep it lubricated to be able to not have this problem. Well, as he starts studying this oil, he starts thinking about, wow, this could be turned into a product of a new kind of oil that could be used for machinery, for this metal machinery. And he starts studying the properties of it. Well, it turns out there were some issues, okay? One of the big issues was you want consistent results, okay? If this gets cold outside, if this oil gets cold and it gets thicker, or if it gets really hot and it turns really runny, 
that's not good. You don't. You want something consistent where if it gets really cold or really warm, it's going to stay in the same consistency or roughly. Okay, so that's one of the big challenges that he had. So he starts looking at how to refine it. He needs to take this, what they called crude oil, and turn it into something that he could use and it would be consistent. Well, turns out inside of this crude oil, there are many, many different kinds of things. There's a kind of wax they would discover inside the oil. And one of the ways that they figured out how to remove the wax was they would cool the oil quite a bit. They would get it much, much cooler and the oil would stay liquid, but the wax would change from a liquid to a solid, and then they'd run it through a filter and strain it out. They also found that there was asphalt inside of the oil and some other, um, other kind of substances that when you got it warm, it would get more runny, and when you got it cold, it would get thicker. And they actually mixed it with certain kinds of chemicals to create a reaction to remove some of those pieces. So lots of things happening, and eventually they would figure out that you could heat it to a very high temperature and actually turn it to a gas, and you could extract a bunch of different things like gasoline and so forth, but we're not gonna talk about that. Um, so he starts to figure out how to refine this, this oil, and finally he gets a product that is much more clean than that original oil, and it can stay much more consistent for different temperatures and other issues that he had to face. So next he starts looking at how to promote this. And you know, that's, you know, if you get something that's really big, it doesn't really matter if nobody ever finds out. You know, so that was one of his next steps. And he would meet somebody named Mr. Henry Ford, and they would start looking at engines, car engines. And there, there happened to be a famous, um, basically a famous race that was going to happen where Ford had a really cool car, a Raptor? No, 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 that's another cool dinosaur um, and a much cooler car. But this is the Henry Ford 999. <laughs> yeah, you wanna take a ride in my 999? <laughs> but they used this oil and he went on this, basically a speed race. They got to like 91 miles per hour and you can imagine, or maybe we can't imagine, how fast that engine was going. And, you know, again, these can melt under that kind of friction heat if it gets too hot. And because the oil was in there, it was able to keep it lubricated and also pull that heat away. And this was a game changer. And all of a sudden, they could start making products that were much more powerful because they had something to keep it lubricated. So this would eventually turn into a huge industry and Dr. John Ellis would go create a company called Valvoline and it would go on to become, as we know now, one of the, the big brands of motor oil. Um, all from these dead creatures that would be pulled up and then find a way to utilize it. So just remember, you never know what one man's junk and garbage could be something that could change an entire industry so you can get moving. Thank you. And now introducing Roger Billings.
I love snow globes. I absolutely You get better love every them. week. I just need to You love get that. better. <laughs> By the way, I wanted to ask you tonight. You heard about the chemistry thing. You took chemistry. I did. So would you like to precipitate? <laughs> no. Would you? You don't want to. Come on, be a good sport. <laughs> yes, I do. Okay. I'll so participate. Just, just, just hold I'll your hands out like this. No, a little further. A little, no, out like this. Yeah. Okay. Now, tilt down a little bit on that side. Okay. So we're seeing what your attitude is. Hmm. That's something it's you like could, you're that's to something you could work on. <laughs> no, it's not. I just thought it was really... I, I want to show you something tonight. I'd love to see something. Do you something. know about these? These are cards. Do you know about cards? Is that a trick question? Yeah, these, these are cards. <laughs> and uh, this, you know, people use them for tricks all the time. They mm -hmm. can get them out of the box. Here. Here they come. Here they come. Yeah, some of them. There we go. So, you want to see this? I do. Okay, just don't be clumsy. Okay, I won't. Did you know that there's a lot of them here? Mm-hmm. Yep. Did you see them all? I want, I want you to just choose a card, okay? I'm going to flip through them, okay. and you choose. You see any card that you want, and then say it out loud, okay? You ready? Okay. <laughs> Did you see it? I, I see the bottom card. That's the one I can see. Okay. She wants to really see it, doesn't she? I'm yeah. going to just flip like this so you can just see any one you want. Did you get one in your mind? I did. Okay, keep it right there. Okay? Okay. I'm now going to use advanced scientific principles yeah. to figure out what your card was. <laughs> it's going to ruin this if you forget it. <laughs> I'm going to show you one more time, see okay. if you can see it again, and don't say, just see. Did you see it? Uh-huh. Okay, and I'm going to show it to them so they can see if they can see which one you chose. Did everybody see that? One more time. Just look and see if you see the one she chose. That'd be pretty did, good did to it? know that. Okay. So I'm now going to see if I can find the card you chose. I see nothing. Well, you, you can't see it? That's not your card? No. <laughs> she not. erased it. I erased it, yes. She erased the card. That's impressive. How did you? Well, actually, it's. You just go. It's okay. You should be able to see it. See okay. if you can see your card. Uh -huh. Was it there? I saw it. It was there. Mm -hmm. I want you guys to see it again. Watch careful. Now keep this up real tight on the camera. Can you keep it right here because I want you to see close up what we're going to do. See that card right there that's blue? Mm -hmm. I mean, just pull it off and look what's underneath it. Nothing. And guess what? What? <laughs> They're all, you erased all, you erased my card. You took my card away. No, no, your card. Oh. It's right on the bottom. Just got to pull it out. back. So did you get that all figured out? <laughs> Not quite. Do you have any questions about it? <laughs> uh -huh, if you I have do. any questions, just tell me. How'd you do it? And I can answer them for you. Okay. Well, I'll tell you, the, the way that you do it okay. 
is it's all in your technique. See, if you, if you hide the cards like that, uh -huh. then while they're hid, you can change them and do whatever you want. <laughs> really? Yeah, that's how oh. it works. So I'm going to take some cards off the top and put them on the bottom. Okay. Okay? How many mm -hmm. should I take off? Three. Three. One, two, three. Okay, now I'm going to put them on the bottom. Did you, Is that a quick change? Should I do that again? <laughs> One, two, three. Put them on the bottom. You did, did you put them that? on the bottom. I did see that, and then they okay. came right back. <laughs> but, but why would you want to put blank cards on the bottom? Well, that seems ridiculous. It doesn't make doesn't any it? sense. It's kind of silly. So they're blank. There's nothing. Yeah. And that, that kind of reminds you of some people's personalities. Me? <laughs> no, I'm not, saying you. I'm not saying I'm you. I'm not saying you. I'm definitely not saying you. Oh. Okay, now, I want you to pick a card. I'm going to mix them up like this so you can pick any card you want. And I'm going to ask you to please pick a good one. Go ahead. Pick any card you want. That one? And show us your card. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> well, come on. Show us. Show us. Please. Please? Can you it see It is not a blank card. You know what? I'm going to have to do a little close-up on this one. Wow. Can you that's get in like, and get on that? There it is. Whoa. No, that's not what I was expecting. How did you get that? That's the question. Attitude. It's, it's all about attitude. What a private Okay. Well, that was just something I wanted to see. Thank you to all the students out there for bearing with us. <laughs> Do you know, I used to be like that little robot. What do you mean? Yeah, you know, the bouncing thing. I like that uh, robot. John talked about when he did the pogo stick. Uh -huh. The pogo stick. So <laughs> when I was young, I had a pogo stick. Uh -huh. And we used to have a lot of fun on it. We'd take turns uh -huh. and we'd count how many times you could bounce without falling over. How old were so you? So we're going like 10 times. <laughs> <laughs> you were 10 years old. I, I was... I was younger then, because uh, it was while I was young. But we'd count, and the goal was to see who'd go the longest. Uh -huh. And when we started playing, you know, like you get seven, that was good, and then yeah. we'd get up to 20, and then we got up to 100. You did 100? And then we got so we could do it forever. I mean, until you get tired. I was never Because when you get really good at it, you, you really can. You're very good at a pogo stick. And so... Um, I had a, a very good friend that used to do that a lot with me, too. And uh, it wasn't fun anymore because you you just do it until you're tired of it. And you can still <laughs> do it, and, but you didn't want to lose. And so I said, okay, I'll tell you what. I'm going to beat you. Wow. And he said, no, you're not. You can't beat me. I can do it as good as you can. I said, no, I'm going to beat you. I'm going to go one more than you're going to do it. And he said, okay, this I got to see. And I said, okay, you go first. <laughs> so he got on and he started bouncing and I went to dinner. Quite a friend. And when I came back, he was still bouncing. <laughs> and he says, okay, I think I'm up to 1,216. Now let's see you beat that. And I said, oh no, you won. Oh, that's good. <laughs> Attitude. All right, it's all it's all about attitude. I'm gonna tease you, friend. <laughs> yeah, I want to tell you though about a, a project that was my very first science fair project. Okay. It was a project to 
to make food. And you know, food is something very important. I like to work on things that are gonna solve world problems and having enough good delicious food is pretty important. And so I was in the library where, where I grew up. And by the way, uh, we were still waiting to invent the internet. So we're pretty well relying on books. And there was some creepy old steps you could go down in my hometown library down in the basement and they had some really old strange books down there. Huh. So I went downstairs and I started looking through these old books and I found one that told how to grow food without sunlight. And I thought, now that's something I would like to do. And according to this scientist who lived back in the 1890s, which was really a long time ago, even back then it was a long time ago. It was a long time ago that it was a long time ago. <laughs> Figure it out. Anyway. <laughs> he discovered that if you would put certain ingredients together and then expose them to ultraviolet energy, that you could turn it right into food. Now, it's kind of a miracle that sunlight can create food out of water and CO2 that's in the air. Remember, CO2 is what we breathe out. CO2 is what soda pop fizzes out, right? Mm -hmm. CO2 is a lot of what comes out of when we, we burn hydrocarbons. So there's CO2 in the air, but if you combine CO2 with water, it becomes food, becomes a, a plant. In fact, a plant's the way we do it. The plant combines CO2 with water and makes it into food by a process known as photosynthesis, which means it uses light to synthesize the food. CO2 is what you get if you take a piece of wood, which is plant, and you burn it in a fire, then the CO2 comes out. So CO2 is burnt plant, but Energy from sunlight is grabbed in photosynthesis and it's used to pull the CO2 apart and make a hydrocarbon food that, that we can eat. Is this making sense? Mm -hmm. And this process of fixing CO2 back into food is called photosynthesis. And it's actually a very complicated process. It has a lot of different steps. And after it gets the food made, then it has to regenerate the chemicals so it can do it again. And it's, it's an amazing, miraculous thing that plants do for us. If it wasn't for photosynthesis, we would all starve to death. So it's, it's a very, very important thing. But this guy figured out a way that you go from ultraviolet light right to food. Hmm. And you didn't need a plant. You just do it in a tube. And I thought, that's neat. We could just make tubes and we could make food for everybody. And so I ordered the stuff. And I had to order it through the mail. Uh, I had to get an ultraviolet light bulb and I got a little teeny one that I found that I could order in a catalog because no internet. I mean, I was going to look it up on Amazon. It wouldn't come up. <laughs> I think the internet was time. down. <laughs> Down, yes. And Amazon, you know, Amazon, this was a jungle, jungle. in Brazil. <laughs> so is. I had to order it, and it came through the mail, and I got my bulb, and I got all the chemicals, and I put it in a little tube, and I held it there, 
and then I got a stand to hold it there and sit for days and weeks and nothing happened. Nothing. Yeah. Nothing, nothing, nothing. And you know, I was going over the optimism curve, <laughs> it was down at the bottom. It was really discouraging because it wasn't making food. And then I learned something that uh, I guess I needed to know, but I didn't like learning it. I went and started reading other papers in the library, in, in journals. Journals are like magazines for scientists. But you know, scientists are really cool, so we don't call them magazines, we call them journals. <laughs> and people were writing about his book and about his experiments. And one guy said, I tried it and I couldn't get it to work. And then someone else tried it and said, it doesn't work. I think he fudged his results. Maybe that's why they put it in the basement, the book. <laughs> You've heard this story before, no, haven't you? No, I haven't. <laughs> that was my punchline. <laughs> All right, now, Please tell me in the wasn't. spirit of fairness, I'd like to turn the rest of the night to her. So there's a, there's a boy in Brazil. His name is Nicholas. Okay, we are out of time. And he would like, oh. he's asking if you could please say something in Portuguese. Could I please say something in Portuguese? Yes. In Portugal. Portuguese. In Portuguese. Portuguese. Brazil. Por in Brazil. Brazil. Yes, I'd love to. <laughs> uh, what should I say? Well, he likes your hydrogen car. He likes my hydrogen yes, car. What is hydrogen that. in Portuguese? I think I know what it is. It's Suisol. Ask him if that's right. Is that right, Nicholas? Suisol. No, I don't think that's, that's right. That's actually hydrogen in Japanese, yeah, isn't it? different language. Mm. All right, I think I can do it in, port in uh, Portuguese. Let's okay. try it. Wasserstoff. That's hydrogen that in German. That sounds a little bit more German. <laughs> yeah. I'll try this. Hydrogen. That's English. Yeah. And finally, Portuguese. Hidrogenio. Hidrogenio. It's a pretty good language, isn't it? Mm -hmm. What's his name? Nicholas. Nicholas. Nicolai? Nicholas. Então, senhor Nicolai, como eu consegui? Hidrogênio estava benjito? No. The answer? Hmm. <laughs> Not yet. No. Okay, back to my story. So I found out this guy was a fraud. He wanted to be so successful that he published results that didn't happen. That's naughty. And you know what? That's not a scientist. Mm -mm. In fact, that's a fool. And I think the person he fooled was himself. Mm -hmm. And I have had a lot of experiments where I was going to do something amazing, but they didn't work. And one of the first things that I did was the hydrogen car. The hydrogen car was going to eliminate all pollution. And I finally was able to get the hydrogen car to run and to get ready for the science fair. I got a sample of the exhaust. I got it in a little glass tube with a hose. And then I took this invisible exhaust gas up to the chemistry lab at the university so we could run the sample through a gas chromatograph. And we ran it through. And of course, there was no hydrocarbons. There couldn't be. It's hydrogen. And, and there was no carbon monoxide because there was no carbon. But then the gas chromatographs got this little indicator. It had a big peak, which meant there was something in there. And the chemistry professor came and helped me interpret the results. And it was nitric oxide. Nitric oxide is a serious pollutant. And it's the stuff lightning makes 
that turns into fertilizer turns into nitric acid. Well, my hydrogen car was making tons of nitric oxide. Regular gasoline cars make nitric oxide, but mine didn't make a little bit. Mine made a ton. It was over a thousand parts per million. I mean, wow. this would kill people. And this was my big invention to save the environment. And it was time for the science fair. Uh, well, I don't have to tell them. <laughs> Everybody knows that if you have hydrogen and you burn it with oxygen, you get water. Seems like end of story. <laughs> so I went to the science fair, I put up all my results, and I put up the little chart. Strange pollutant, where'd it come from? Air is made up of oxygen, 20%, nitrogen, 80%. And they don't react unless you get up above about 2,400 degrees Fahrenheit, which is the temperature inside an engine, in which case oxygen and nitrogen in air combine, and they form nitric oxide, which is a bad pollutant. Mm -hmm. So I put on my poster, my project was a failure. Oh, I didn't say that. I just, you know, it's, it's what I learned, is that when you run an engine on hydrogen, it makes nitric oxide. Well, it's pretty easy to get through the local science fair because it was small. But then when I went to the international science fair, which my year was held down in Dallas, Texas, and we went there, these big judges come around, and this one guy came around and saw my thing. He says, so... Your car wasn't pollution-free after all. It was a real polluter. It made nitric oxide. And he said, yeah. Yeah, unfortunately, that's how it turned out. And he says, well, I commend you for your honesty. <laughs> and, you know, um, I won the gold and silver medal. Hmm. Not because I invented a pollution-free car, but because I did an experiment. I had a hypothesis. I was sure it was going to work. It didn't, and I told the truth. And, and I'm glad I did. I wonder if I could have won a better medal if I had fudged. I didn't because I got the medal I wanted. But here's the thing. I learned a very, very important lesson. I learned that science is the search for truth, not the search for pretending you had success. And I think every, every real scientist knows that. You're not going to learn anything if you fudge the results. You have to let the re results tell you the truth. Now, this story kind of got more interesting as I went forward because here I am graduating from high school and I was going to save the world from pollution by running cars on hydrogen and hydrogen made more pollution than other cars. And so I'm ready to give up. I was working on my... Attitude, attitude. <laughs> but I eventually got my scholarship. I went to the university. And then at the very end of my university opportunity, there was an announcement. There was going to be a big contest. All universities were invited to build a pollution-free car. And I had a car that would run on hydrogen that made nitric oxide by heating air up too hot. But in those years, while I was a student, I'd been doing some research. And my research was, was kind of notable. It's worth talking about. I was a freshman. 
I wanted to get rid of that darn nitric oxide. And so because my experiment was a failure, I wrote a proposal asking Ford Motor Company if they would give me a research grant to see if I could get rid of that nitric oxide. And they wrote me back a nice letter and they said, you need to have this form signed by someone official at your school so that if we do give you a grant, they will supervise it and take responsibility for your research. And some of you have heard me tell my very true story about <laughs> how I went over to the vice president of the university's office, who I did not know, and I went into his secretary and I said, I need this paper signed for Ford. And she says, oh, okay, we'll come back tomorrow. <laughs> I came back tomorrow. Oh yeah, here's your paper. The vice president signed it. Thank you, thank you. Now I'm a freshman. Mm -hmm. That means I'm just starting college. It means I know everything that very fresh people know. <laughs> and uh, I sent the paper back to Ford. They sent a contract, all signed, and I had a research grant. And one of the things that the paper said that the vice president signed is they would furnish me a laboratory to do my research in. And I really liked the idea of having a laboratory. <laughs> so I went back over to the vice president's office with the signed contract from Ford, and I said to the secretary, so where did he want me to work? And she says, what do you mean? Where do he want you to work? Well, he signed the contract saying that the university would provide a laboratory. I'm just wondering where it is. And she said, what? I got to meet the vice president. <laughs> and he said, no, I thought you were a graduate student. And I said, well, in a few years. <laughs> But I had a contract signed by the vice president, mm -hmm. you get a laboratory. And so they went over to the chemistry department, introduced me to a very nice chemistry professor who found me a place to work in a laboratory. And, and it was one of those laboratories that had a roof that went chunk, 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 chunk. Above me was a lecture hall. <laughs> and these were the seats like that. And I was the place underneath the lecture hall. And there we set up my little experiment, my little engine, and, and I started figuring out how are we going to get rid of the nitric oxide? Well, I did some study and I found out that it was caused by heating air too hot. But if you don't heat air, how are you gonna power an engine? You gotta burn the hydrogen, that's a flame, flames are hot, there's gotta be a way to get rid of it. And so I found out about a a program that had been written by the United States Navy to study combustion inside an engine. They were trying to make it more efficient. And so what you could do on a computer, you could run a mathematical program and it would calculate exactly the temperatures and what kind of byproducts would be generated from combustion. I ran that program on the computer and I kept putting different things in. And finally, an idea, you know what? When you burn hydrogen, you get water. What if I took some of the water out of the exhaust and put it back in the engine? And if I could spray it so there'd be little droplets, maybe those droplets would puff into steam and that would cool down the flame. Put in the computer, 
and it said it would. It said it cooled the flame way down. It also said that there'd be a little bit more efficiency and a little more power. And for those of you guys that have engineering backgrounds, it was because when water bursts into steam, it expands 1,400 times. A droplet gets 1,400 times bigger when it turns into a water vapor. And that's kind of how a steam engine works. And I would have a little bit of that from the droplets I put in here. Well, it was about this time that I got notice of this clean air race between universities. So now I'm going to put some water droplets in the engine with my hydrogen, and I'm going to clean up on that air race. <laughs> yeah, pretty exciting. Mm -hmm. So first thing I needed was a car. I, I just couldn't take the old Model A on a big national contest. And the contest was going to be held at the General Motors Proving Grounds in Ann Arbor. They were going to do their laboratory to test the exhaust of all the cars. So I needed a new car. Check my wallet. That didn't work. <laughs> so then I got this idea, and I went down to the local car dealership where they sold rotary engine, Winkle engines, Mazda. And I explained to the owner of the dealership, I need a car to convert to hydrogen to win the clean air race. And he was the nicest man. He said, well, it won't hurt the car. Well, I said, well, I don't think so. It should be fine. And so he loaned me a car, and I took it back to the lab, and I converted it, got it to run on hydrogen, and then I took a gas sample, and we ran it through the gas chromatograph just to make sure there was no pollution. And lo and behold, there was a lot of spikes. There was pollution. There was hydrocarbons. There was carbon monoxide. And so then I went and did a little more research, and I found out that in a Winkle engine, it's a rotary engine, there's a thing they call the apex sill that has to be lubricated. That's what Tobias was talking about. That's where they take dinosaurs, make oil, <laughs> and put it in there. So they were squirting oil into the engine, which was burning. It wasn't a ton of pollution, but it was more than I wanted. So then it's almost time to send the car to Michigan, so I went down to the Volkswagen dealership. I said, could I please use a Volkswagen Beetle? And I was very persuasive because he let me use one. I must have been. I had a good altitude. Anyway, <laughs> we hurried and converted the Volkswagen. We took it over and ran it on the gas chromatograph, and it said no pollution. However, the chromatograph wasn't incredibly accurate, but it was accurate enough to see it was a lot better than my other cars. And off we went to, to Michigan. Now, the instruments for measuring pollution at General Motors were extremely good instruments. They were so sensitive, they could measure the pollution just in the air we breathe. Can you smell it? There's a little bit of hydrocarbons, nitric oxide, and carbon monoxide in air, and they were so sensitive they could measure that. So any car that made any pollution, they would pick it up. And there was like 100, I think 150 cars wow. from all over the U.S. And they were all different. Some of the cars uh, ran on methanol. Some One car ran on ammonia. Oh, Boy, yes. that stunk. <laughs> and uh, there were a bunch of cars that ran on electric batteries. 
That's really interesting. The way they scored the race is we take, it was like golf. The lower score you get, the better. So they take the amount of each kind of pollutant, hydrocarbons, carbon monoxide, and nitric oxide, and then multiply the amount you got times 100 and add them up, and whoever had the lowest score won. Well, when they took the pollution of the electric cars, there was no carbon monoxide, there was no hydrocarbons, there was no nitric oxide, it was zero, zero, zero. Zero times 100 is zero, and all the electric cars had a perfect score of zero. That kind of shook me up a little bit because they generated a lot of pollution when they made the electricity, but they didn't count that. And then there was the flywheel car. You ever heard of a flywheel car? I can have hard time imagining A flywheel. Flywheel is a, a big metal wheel mm -hmm. that spins like a gyro. And they spin it up to very, very high speed, and it's heavy, so that it contains so much energy by spinning that you can drive with it. For how long? The, until it quits spinning. Yeah. But it, it could drive for miles and miles. Huh. Not hundreds of miles, but enough yeah. to do the test. Mm -hmm. But the interesting thing is how you spin it up. How do you do it? They would push the car because it didn't, couldn't start. They push it back to a great big tractor, like a semi-tractor trailer. And they had a special coupler there. And that big old tractor trailer had a big smoke stagger. Oh, and the smoke's going up no in the air there. and going up in the air and the flywheel spinning up, spinning up, spinning That's up. And they really got it spinning. They drove into the laboratory and did a test, zero pollution. <laughs> outside there's a big black cloud. So the electric cars and the flywheel car all had zero, zero, zero. And the way they do this, they push you on a dynamometer. Does everybody know what a dynamometer is? Mm -hmm. It's like this two big rollers in the floor and you push a car over it so the tires sit on the rollers and when you drive it spins the rollers and the rollers are hooked up to a brake and there's two different kinds of, of dynamometers but it makes the car work hard like it's really driving and they ran through an EPA test cycle which is supposed to be standard driving in a city they call it the EPA 4 test cycle so that they would really be able to compare the different cars well they pushed my little Volkswagen up on the dynamometer, and then we were supposed to start the car. And it would crank, but it wouldn't fire. Hmm. It's got to be a bad feeling. We remember that, don't we? Mm -hmm. I, I have my witness here. Tanya was there, and I'm there, and we look at each other like, Ooh. Now, in a Volkswagen, the engine's not in front, it's in the back. It's kind of like you go back to the trunk and, oh, there it is. And so oh, I went back and I, oh, there it is. Hey, and that's the very Volkswagen. Who's that? <laughs> I think that's Robert that's Redford. That's the scientist, Robert yeah. <laughs> Can't tell for sure. But there's the car. And I lift up the little hood in the back. And lo and behold, there was a spring that pulled the accelerator back to zero. And the spring had been cut in two. Naughty sabotage. Well, it didn't seem like it would break, but it was cut in two. So the throttle was staying open. So I asked the guy at GM if he had a rubber band. Oh, and he said he did. And I put the rubber band on and placed the spring that held it closed, and then it started right up. Wow. And we started doing the test. So I could say 
I had a car powered by rubber bands. <laughs> you know, when I was younger, I had an airplane powered by a rubber uh, band, too. You know, yeah, that was fun. Anyway, we had to go out of the laboratory while they were testing. So we were looking through this big window in there. And uh, they started running the cycle and started testing and so forth. And then they quit in the middle. Now, when the ammonia car was being tested, they had started testing it, and they quit in the middle. And then they did something with the instruments, and they started testing again, and they quit a second time. And they adjusted the instruments, and then finally, they finished the test, and they came out. And the nitric oxide from the ammonia car was so high, they couldn't even test it. They kept trying to recalibrate their instruments because it was so high. And I thought, oh, just reminds me of the science fair days. <laughs> So anyway, when we got our turn, they were testing, and they stopped in the middle. I thought, oh, no, we still have too much nitric oxide. They got going again, and then they came out with the results, and they said they had to recalibrate because the pollution was so low. Wow. And that made me kind of happy. Yeah. And then they said, yeah, here's what happened. The carbon monoxide was cleaner than the air in the room. The hydrocarbons were less than the air in the room. And the nitric oxide was just one part per million. Now think about it a minute. If you have hydrocarbons in the air and you run them through a hydrogen engine, it burns up the hydrocarbons. No wonder it went down. Carbon monoxide, it burned it up. It went down. And the nitric oxide was so low. When they multiplied them times 100, they got a little teeny bit for the nitric oxide, but the other two were minus. When they add them up, we end up with 0 0.001. All electric cars were perfect zero. We were minus 0 0.001. We won first place. Wow. And we were very proud of that. Yeah. Now stop for a minute. What if I had fudged my results in high school? Yeah. What if I just said, "Hey, clean the air. See, it's hydrogen. It wouldn't make it wouldn't make any pollution." What if I hadn't tested it? What if I had tested it and forgot to report it? Um, when I say I would have fudged my data, I'm talking about bad fudge. Hmm. Nothing against chocolate. Chocolate, <laughs> chocolate is is, is a holy thing. Yeah, <laughs> chocolate's good. But uh, I have, I like chocolate. The dark chocolate. Oh, chocolate, <laughs> chocolate, chocolate. <laughs> anyway, but the point is, because I was accurate, I found out what the problem was, and these little tiny droplets of water that I sprayed in the engine completely eliminated the pollution wow. and made it actually clean the air. In fact, when this came out, it was written up in newspapers all over the country, and I got clippings. I ordered clippings from all the newspapers I find. I have a whole big fat book of them. And there was one article that was in the Los Angeles Times in California. And the Southern Coastal Air Basin, the area around California, is one of the most polluted places in the world because of automobile pollution because they have so many cars. And the headline said, this car would probably not even be able to drive in LA air, because it cleans the air as it drives. <laughs> it needs it though, LA Yeah, it's it. fun. So anyway, 
it turned out to be a very, very worthwhile project. And I'm very grateful that I learned the importance of integrity in science. And I, I think that you can stretch that a little bit if you want to, to include integrity in life. Uh, I've found that people that I work with that don't give me straight and accurate answers, I have a hard time respecting. And over time, I just kind of phase them out because you never know where you stand. You don't know what's going on. The people that really do the things, the people that glom together like teams and, and make amazing things happen are people that tell it straight, that don't fudge. They, they face the negative along with the good. And once you face it, once you document it, once you understand it, then you can go about making it better. And I think that's really a wonderful, wonderful lesson to learn. Now another little side thing that I want to say, I'm, I'm really excited because my dream of being able to just turn energy into food is finally coming to fruition. And that's thanks in part to NASA scientists that clear back in the time I was winning the science fair with my hydrogen car, they were doing the project to make the uh, process to produce food directly from CO2, but instead of using sunlight, they used hydrogen. So hydrogen food. Hydrogen made protein. It turns out that there is a microorganism, a little one-cell microscopic critter that you can put into a container with CO2 from the air, and it's this particular bacteria has a property so you call it a hydrogenotroph. And a hydrogenotroph is a bacteria that gets its energy from hydrogen. So it's like hydrogen-powered bacteria. <laughs> and instead of a whole season, you can grow a whole tank full of food in just a couple days. And so here's a way we can make a wonderful protein that is very healthy because it has so many different vitamins and it has all nine of the essential amino acids. And it, so it's a complete protein and it, it can be grown in quantities that we could feed an enormous population. I think it's pretty exciting. And I'm, I'm looking forward to developing the use of this hydrogen grown protein with our einkorn wheat protein to be able to create a, a, a very good food. I, I think maybe we start out as a, a feed for animals and then hopefully we can go in and learn how to do a lot of wonderful things with it. So you don't give up when your science fair project fails, but sometimes it takes a while for the missing piece of technology to be developed and, and uh, that's why when we go over the optimism curve, it's kind of like going off a waterfall. <laughs> and when you go off a waterfall, I don't know how many, is, did you ever go over Niagara? No, <laughs> or, I don't want to. For our friend, did you ever go Iguazu? Iguazu, I've never been yeah. there. I've, I've never gone over Anyway, <laughs> when you go over a waterfall, when you hit the bottom, you go underwater. Mm -hmm. But you just hang on, and eventually you come back up. 
So Gabriel, Gabriel has a question. Okay. I'm wondering the same thing. He wonders if the food will taste different um, if it's produced under artificial light than in sunlight. Well, uh, we're talking about the hydroponic mm -hmm. subterranean gardens. Right. And yes, it does taste different, but it tastes different in a wonderful way. Mm. When we put the nutrients in for the food, uh -huh. we, we have the option of being able to tweak them a little bit for the flavor we want. Some people like radishes so hot you can barely eat radishes. Mm -hmm. Well, you can grow them that way. Sometimes the way a radish tastes depends on the soil you plant it in and how much watering it gets. Well, since we control the chemicals, we can make it hot or sweet. The, the place that I first tasted hydroponic uh, lettuce was at Georgetown University at their faculty mm -hmm. cafeteria. And when I tasted that lettuce, I think it was the first time in my life that I really loved lettuce. Hmm. Before that, it was, I'm going to eat this, so I'll be healthy food. But it was so delicious. I said, where did you get this lettuce? He said, yeah, we made it right here in our, our lab. Because it can be really bitter sometimes. Oh, it can be so good. So the food can taste very, very delicious. Mm -hmm. And it, it's actually... Uh, the same food made by the same photosynthesis. It's just that instead of getting the light from the sun, we're getting the light from the sun, which was brought to us by a solar collector or by a wind turbine or by hydroelectric. Remember, it's the sun that lifts water up in the sky so it rains up in the mountains to make our big dams be powered. All of the energy that we enjoy, even the hydrocarbons we learned today from the dinosaurs, all come from the sun, yeah. with the only exception being uh, those made by uh, atomic energy plants. So it's kind of neat. And of course, the sun makes its energy by a hydrogen fusion plant. Mm -hmm. So you can see why, without any question, hydrogen is the most abundant element in the universe. <laughs> and it's also the most popular atom in the human body. Okay. We have more hydrogen atoms than any other kind of atom. So we're run by hydrogen, basically. No. no? Uh, <laughs> I, I was going to say around here we're run by you, but I figured oh. that, that would not be respectful, so I'm not going to say that. Delete, delete, delete. Hydrogen. But, uh, yeah. Wow. Uh, the, what can you say about hydrogen? Uh, it's a gas. It's a gas. Yeah. And... It's exciting to be able to find out all the different things we can do. There. Well, thank yes. you so much for joining us. Study hard. It pays off. Thank you, <laughs> thank you all for joining us. We'll see you next week. Have a great one.